You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 3, starting at verse number 16. Then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass that the third day after that I was delivered, that this woman was delivered also. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to give the child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is dead. The other saith, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. This is the word of the Lord. At the palace of the Phrygian kings in Gordium, there was an ox cart tied with a knot. And the knot was so intricate that that legend said, whoever could untie this knot would then rule all of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The historian, the Roman historian, Quintus Curtius Rufus, described it as the knot comprising several knots, all so tightly entangled that it was impossible to see how they were fastened. Alexander the Great tried to untie the knot when he wintered in Gordium in 333 B.C. The knot didn't have any end to unravel. And so, because he wanted to rule all of Asia Minor, he took out his sword and with one swoop of the sword, Cut the knot in half, therefore untying the knot. Today we use that terminology when we say something of a a Gordian knot, and it means that there's a problem that's so difficult, it's like disentangling an impossible knot. When I was a kid, I know you won't believe this, but I used to have long, flowing, beautiful hair. As a child of the 70s. And I I can remember that my mother, uh, every now and then, would say, listen, sit down. I want to get the snarls, she called them snarls, out of your hair. And what that meant was, I had like a bird's nest in my hair. Got up in the morning, couldn't care, played all day, dirt, muck, mire, didn't care. And at night, she would bathe me and try to get these snarls out of my head with a comb. It didn't go well for me. It would be like, And and then all of these things would just be broken up. They were impossible to untangle. If you're a fisherman or fisherwoman and you ever use a bait-casting 
rod and reel system. If you're not careful, it's really easy to have a rat nest where it's almost impossible to untangle that line. It's known as a Gordian knot, this problem. And Solomon finds himself, after immediately praying for wisdom, confronted with this impossible knot. And it comes in the way of a court case. So, let's look at the situation this morning. There are two prostitutes who live together in the same house. They give birth three days apart. In the middle of the night, the one prostitute in weariness rolls over in her bed and she literally suffocates her own child. When she wakes up in the middle of the night, she realizes the horror of what has just happened. And in a panic and in desperation, she takes her dead child and puts it in the arms of the other woman and takes the living child back to bed with her. The other mother gets up in the morning, goes to feed her child, and as she does, she's horrified to see that her child is dead. But upon further investigation, like any mother, even after three days, she knows this is not her son. And so she says to the woman, listen, this is not my son, this is your son. And the other one says, no, 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 that's your son, the living is my son. And here's the problem, there was no witness in the house. Apparently, advanced pregnancy wasn't good for business. Not a bunch of guys hanging out there now. They were by themselves. And somehow, these two prostitutes and this illegitimate child get a hearing with the king of Israel. And here is Solomon now. It is one woman's word against the other. And the problem is, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 19, 15, says that you need at least two or three witnesses because you just can't decide something with one word against the other. Do you know why? Because people lie all the time. He said, she said, who's telling the truth? Parents, you've certainly experienced this. Who had the toy first? I did. No, I did. Who spilled the milk? He did. No, she did. And this is what's happening on a much greater level. And so, here is the king, and he has to decide who's telling the truth. And remember, right? no witnesses, no video. These aren't the streets of London. right? There, there's no video, no audio, no lie detector test, no truth serum, none of it. And now the king is tasked with figuring out who is telling the truth. Before we move on to the story, let's just stop to reflect on this story because it's a sad, sad story. And everyone in this story deserves our pity. Everyone. Two prostitutes. This is how they make a living. Here are two women who are used and abused. They deserve our pity. Isn't it sad that in this world we live in, some things never change? 
that women in our world today are objectified through human trafficking, through prostitution, through pornography. These women deserve our pity. And I don't care what you want to say is, well, you made, this is a, you made your bed, now lie in it. How many bad beds have we made that we don't want to lie in? You better be careful how we judge people. These women deserve our pity. They were prostitutes, and now they had the promise of a son. And in their culture and in their day, this was hope for them. That maybe somehow, some way, they could get out of this situation. If this boy would grow up into a man to take care of things in the household, this might stop. And now, in a moment, it's gone. It's gone. They both suffer heartbreak. The one is responsible. You know, the first child that you have, it's like, just so that you know, young people, this is how it works. You have your first kid, and you don't sleep, because you're always wondering if they're still breathing. Like, if there's not a noise, it's like, I know he's dead. And so, you know, before the days of having the cool radios in the room, which probably were a bad idea, because you're not going to sleep anyways, but I can recall getting up in the middle of the night thinking, this kid is quiet, is he breathing, and watching his chest, and putting my finger under his nose. It was wet. He was alive. And it was good. Right? And here is this woman who in exhaustion rolls over in bed and she suffocates. Her child is gone. The other one wakes up and thinks her child's dead, traumatic, and then realizes he's not, but he's been snatched away. Both these women deserve our pity. Both these children deserve our pity. Churches like this, there are, there's death and there's life. There's joy and there's sorrow. This week I had a chance to see both little Leighton born and then with Alan and Selena's little girl. I don't think she wanted me to hold her, but I just went ahead and held her. You could tell, I was like, ooh, and I said, oh, that's okay, I'll pray for her and I'll give her back to you. They're beautiful. I mean, just beautiful. And Canadian babies are even more beautiful than American babies. I don't know what that is. I've not seen an ugly one yet. But the precious little life, and there's a joy in that. And here, this baby is gone. Listen, all life matters. All of it. I was going to say from the cradle to the tomb, but let me change that. From the womb to the tomb, all life matters. Old and young, rich and poor, black and white, Educated or uneducated, it doesn't matter. The loss of life is tragic. And these children deserve our pity. The one then becomes a pawn. He's vulnerable. He's innocent. Has no idea. He's been snatched from his mother. And now he's a piece in this chess game to see who will be awarded the child. And then the king. King Solomon deserves our pity. Could you imagine... This, as far as we know, this is his first case, right? like an easy one. Let's just sort of just ease into this thing of being the king, of making judgment. Let's ease into this. What's my first court case? And this is it. She said, she said, no witnesses, a living child, a dead one. Now you decide. The odds are stacked against him. 
totally against him. And his decision will change three lives forever. Forever. Now, look at Solomon's solution. Back in our text, verse 24. And the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought the king a sword. Now listen to me. Think of this. We're in the royal courtroom, and we see this thing unfold before us. And we're we're expecting and anticipating, what will the king do? I promise you, nobody in that courtroom thought, I know what he's going to do. He's going to call for a sword. That's weird. That's really weird that Solomon would say, okay, I've heard your side. I've heard your side. Now bring me a sword. If you think that's weird, it gets worse. And the king said, divide the living child. Give half to this mom. Give half to the other mom. And everyone will be happy, except for the kid. Right? This is equal, but it's cruel. And no one in that courtroom, no one in the palace, ever expected that to be his answer. Look at the shocking response of the authentic mother. Verse number 26. Then spake the woman, whose the living child was, unto the king, for her heart yearned upon her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She says, Wait a minute. Stop. Don't, don't do this. This is the real mom. And we see in an instant the love of a mother for her child. Young people, listen to me. I know you don't get it. I know you can't understand this, but you will never fathom the love that a mother has for her children. And I know there are times in your life you think, oh, she's on my nerves and she's getting under my skin. I can't stand this. I want to get out of here. She's so controlling. Or that. Listen to me. You cannot comprehend the real love of a mother for her child. You cannot. And for a boy or a man, you have no concept. Because it starts in pain. Right? And yet this mother says, no, listen to me. A mother would die for her child without even thinking about it. That's the love of a mother. And she says, stop. Stop. I am willing to give up my well-being so that my son can live. And all of a sudden, she's like, well, adoption's an option. If this is a choice, don't cut him in half. Stop. Now, look at the abducting mother and her shocking response. Verse 26 goes on to say, but the other said, let it be neither mine nor thine. Divide it. Cut it in half. She doesn't say stop. She says, sure. Sure. Now, this is a huge problem, right? This is more than just, the kids were being bad today, so I decided to cut them in half, right? It's like, what? If you don't want a mother like this, you, you just don't. This is not the mom that you think, I'm glad she's my mom. You know, we had a problem the other day. She said, just cut them in half. Just cut them in half. This will do it for me. It's good for me. She's not right. She's suffering, really suffering. And in her pain and tremendous loss, she says, you know what? If I can't have a kid, you shouldn't have one either. So cut him in half. 
Now listen to me. When we read the Old Testament, the New Testament, when we're in narrative, we really ought to understand we're talking this morning about a real-life event with real people. And what I'd like you to do is I would like you, for just a moment, to place yourself in that palace courtroom setting to be watching this all unfold, right? right? This is a true Gordian knot 650 years before it ever happened. And you're sitting there and you're watching and you hear the agony and the pain of this woman saying, that was my son. You didn't know it's not mine. That's my son. And then, and then it's like, what's going to happen here? And the king says, bring me a sword. We're going to solve this right now. We'll cut him in half. And you're shocked. And then you hear the one woman say, no, 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 don't. And the other one says, go ahead and do it. If I can't have one, just do it. And, and, and the electricity and the excitement in that room thinking, what happens next? And here Solomon cuts the tension in verse number 27. In the midst of all of this, this, this whole event that just transpired before the entire royal palace, Solomon then says in verse number 27, just kidding. Just kidding. Ah, put the sword down. We're not going to cut this kid in half. It's obvious who the real mother is. Don't harm the child. And so... You see the shocking response of the authentic mom, the abducting mom. But I want you to see now the shocking response of the audience. Look, if you would, at verse number 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. To do justice. So the, the folks in the royal palace in the courtroom, word gets out. And Israel hears what has just transpired. And the Bible says that all of Israel feared the king. Why? Because they understood what a problem this was. How in the world would he know? How could he know? How could he, how could he see? How could he perceive? That was such a wise thing that he did. I can't believe it. And it's like, oh, my goodness. That was God's wisdom. Our king has the wisdom of God on his life. And they were fearful because they knew there was a king who was going to do justice. And in his great wisdom, he would do right and he would right all wrongs for all people, even whores and bastards. The king. This is a great, great story. And really, if you would just sit back and maybe think about this story, how unbelievable it is. There's more. There's more to this story. Why? Because a greater than Solomon is here. And this story has our Savior's DNA all over it. It's, it's, it's all over it. One of the great things about seeing the totality of Scripture is that that when you look to the Old Testament, you see that every story shouts his name, whispers his name. It all points to Jesus, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the one Messiah who would come and rule and reign. Everything points to Christ. And in this story, we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, with his wisdom, his justice, and his mercy, because a greater than Solomon is here. Let's look at that this morning for the next few moments. I want you to see 
Christ's wisdom in his dilemma and our dilemma, the dilemma of sin. The dilemma of sin. If I were to ask you this morning, the greatest problem that humanity has, we would have a list. We, we would have a list. You know, it's the environment, it's terrorism, it's, and, and we could go on and on and on, and tragedy in all those areas. But let me say to you this morning, the greatest problem that humanity has is the problem of sin. It's sin. And it's not everyone else's sin, it's my sin and your sin. And, and we don't see the problem. We, we really don't. The, world, the, the word sin now is offensive. You don't want to say it. You don't want to upset anyone or rock the boat. Don't say sin. We all know we're not perfect, but stay away from that. Or we try to produce our own standard. And we say, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like him or I'm not like her. We don't see it in ourselves. Just as this prostitute, there are things in the middle of the night that we would never want discovered or uncovered in our own lives. And I would submit this morning, there are things in the middle of our hearts that we would die if they were exposed. Sin is a problem. And you better understand this. This is a Gordian knot. This is a real problem for you and for me because we're dealing with a holy, righteous God. And just so maybe, maybe this might help us when we think of sin. Look at Revelation chapter 21. This is a great text. Verse number 8 comes after speaking about heaven and wiping away the tears and all the beauty that God has for his people. Listen to what he says in Revelation 21 verse 8. But the fearful or cowardly, the unbelieving, which is the faithless ones, no faith, not in God, not in Christ, the faithless ones, and the abominable or detestable, and murderers and whoremongers, sexually immoral people, and saucers, and idolaters, and all liars. And just stop for a second, because right away it's like, yeah, check, 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 no, 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 sorry, wait a minute, wait a minute. Murderers, whoremongers, sexually immoral people. Jesus already amped this up. You think this way in your heart? You're angry at your brother without a cause, right? You have this lustful thought about that man or that woman. You're, you're in this list. Let alone the fearful or the coward or the faithless or, or heaven forbid, the liar. The liar. Is there anybody here that would even pretend, maybe with the children here they'd raise their hand, but that you never lied? We lie all the time. We lie to ourselves. We lie to others. And here's what he says about this list of sinners. Shall all have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. So before we excuse this morning the idea of sin, we better be sober about this list. It's a problem. Why? Because there's a holy God and a holy God who will judge sin. And just in case you think this is a joke, oh yeah, Adam and Eve, take the fruit, and then the day you eat it, you'll die. Listen, death has passed on all men. God's word true. Today, every 1.7 seconds, 
someone dies. Today, 1.7 seconds. This hour, by the time we finish this hour, 6,316 people will be dead. By the end of the day, today, 151,600 people will die. Why? You can put whatever you want on the record. They will die because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And here's the problem. God, who is holy, must deal with sin. And he can't just say, don't worry about it. You're a nice guy. You're a nice girl. You go to church. You do your taxes right. You try to live honest. Wait a minute. We have sinned constantly, daily, hourly against this God, and there is a payment to be made, and someone will make the payment. Even in forgiveness, you know this. Your spouse sins against you and you want to make it right, or a friend sins against you, someone absorbs that that payment. You absorb the hurt. You absorb the pain. You grant forgiveness. When forgiveness is granted, someone pays for it. If you, after service today, drive your car through my front window, which is right next door here. If you'd like to do that, go ahead. Right through the front window. Just go all the way through and destroy the place. And I say to you, you're forgiven. That's great. You're off the hook. But somebody pays for it. Somebody absorbs the cost. And so when we talk about the God of heaven and unsinning us, this is a problem. Because God is good, holy, righteous, and just. He's not just going to let you off the hook. Someone has to pay the price. And here's what happened. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, by the wounding body of Christ, the way to heaven is now opened. And that price was paid. It was paid on Calvary. That's why in Romans chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, Paul can say, God, the one who is just, can now justify us. Why? Because we put our faith and trust in Christ who paid the price for our sins. He bore the wrath of God on our, on our account. It was poured on his head. So that now what happens is I exchange my sinfulness for his righteousness. For his righteousness. And I am redeemed. He gave his life for me. And this is our God. The God from whom we need to be saved is the very God who saves us. We see Christ's wisdom in the dilemma of sin. Secondly, we see the glory of Christ in delivering justice. Justice. Do you know our Savior was treated unjustly? 1 Peter 3.18 talks about the fact that, that he was the just one paying or suffering for those who are unjust. Peter chapter 2 tells us about the fact that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Christian, just so that you know, this world is not just. And if you live for Christ, you will suffer. This is part of our calling. So don't be surprised when it happens. It will happen. And we should enter into that with our Savior. But listen to me. There is real injustice in this world. And the believer knows it and understands it. I listened to a podcast the other day, and it was about um, Johannesburg, South Africa in the 80s, under apartheid. 
And I, I listened to it, and I was, I was doing stuff in the yard. I had my headset in, listening to it. I almost said my Walkman, but those don't exist anymore. Um, I was listening to it, and, and a, a man who was probably my age was talking about his childhood. And he said, in Johannesburg during this time, his father had married a black woman, which was illegal. 1980s, illegal. And when they drove in the car together, the father and son sat in the front seat, and the mother sat in the back. And when asked, they had to say, that's our maid. I have to tell you, I, it made me weep that people could actually feel that way and live like that. And we find it all over our world. There is injustice everywhere. You talk about Rwanda and genocide. You talk about ISIS and what they do. You talk about North Korea and people dying because they touched the Bible or knew someone who had it. You see women in Saudi Arabia who can't get a license. And we see it in our own lives. There's injustice everywhere. And we hate it. And we despise it. And yet I want you to know this morning that justice will be served. There is coming a day when there will be true justice in this world. Listen to what heaven shouts in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. It says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Why? Because for true and righteous are his judgments. My friend, listen to me. If Israel was amazed and fearful at Solomon's wisdom when they knew he would do right to all people, What will be the response of the world when Jesus Christ comes back to rule and reign and writes every wrong that has ever been done in human history? It will be glorious. Glorious. And he will write all things. Even so, come Lord Jesus. A greater than Solomon is here. We see it as he solved the dilemma of sin. We see it as he will deliver justice. And finally, we see it in the depths of his mercy. What mercy for Solomon to hear this case, to hear it. This is not good for him. It's two prostitutes and an illegitimate child. What does it matter? But in his mercy, he hears it. And can I tell you, is this not our Savior? I was listening this morning again to John 8, maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible. And Jesus is teaching in the temple. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees come, and they got this woman. And they say, hey, Jesus, wait a minute. We caught this chick in the very act of adultery, which is strange. I always thought it took two people. Always strange to me there's no guy around. I just wonder if he's in the crowd. And they take this woman, and it says, literally, they threw her in the midst. She's in the middle of this crowd, standing there, humiliated, and ashamed. And say, our law says stone her. What do you say? And Jesus, he kneels down and he acts as if he doesn't even hear them. 
which is really cool. Really cool. He just starts to write in the ground. And they keep on talking. And he looks up and he says, you without sin, go ahead. You pick up the first stone. And you cast it at the woman. And then he starts writing again. Just writing. And the Bible says, from the oldest dude there, the old guys knew something was up. <laughs> I was like, I, I wonder what was in the dirt, but I have a hunch it may have been names and times and places and people. And the old guys start just backing off. And before you know it, the young guys aren't around either. They all had stones ready to go on this thing. Jesus looks up, and the woman's there, and he says, Woman, where are your accusers at? And she says, You're gone, Lord. No man. And he says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What mercy. What mercy. The mercy of Christ. After that portion of scripture in John chapter 8, um, I won't read the text, but it talks about that he is light, he is deliverance from darkness, he is life and freedom, and that's what Jesus brings in his mercy. So, in closing this morning, what do we take away from this text? Well, number one, we should not take our sin lightly. Christ has solved the dilemma of our sin, but we should not take it lightly. It cost a great price. Listen to me. We all have sin that we think is acceptable or respectable. And what I'm telling you this morning from the Word of God is it's all an offense against the holy, righteous God. Don't play with it. Don't excuse it. Don't act like it's nothing. I'm talking about gossip. I'm talking about slander. I'm talking about talking about people behind their backs without confronting them first. I'm talking about lust and envy and greed. Listen, we ought not play with sin. It cost Jesus Christ his life. The things that we enjoy and toy with and play with and excuse, Jesus died for those things. He solved the problem of my sin. I should not glory in it. God forbid I should live in light of his freedom now. Don't play with sin. Number two. We should despise injustice and do all we can to work for its end. And let me just say, let's start by despising injustice in our own hearts. I think it was Solzhenitsyn, I don't think he coined this, it goes back farther, I'm sure, but he said that the, the, the line between good and evil runs through the human heart. Was it Solzhenitsyn, Greg? It was. The line of good and evil runs between the human heart. It's right, right down the middle. Can I tell you something? In our hearts this morning, there's injustice. There is. We have prejudice in our lives. We treat people differently in our lives. We look down on others, and so we should despise injustice. Why? Because our Christ is just, and he will make all things right, and we ought to be working along the same lines as we deal with people in our lives. And then we should rejoice in mercy. Rejoice in mercy. Do you know what the the gospel is? Here's what the gospel is. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. (laughs) Hey, 
It's not about me and how great I am. I'm one beggar in need of food, and I found the bread of life, and let me point you to the direction that you ought to go in, that you can find life as well. I've experienced mercy. I want you to experience mercy as well. We are blessed. And listen to me. There are tragic stories all around us. Open your eyes. Well, they need... Yeah. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Could we not be merciful? Who do we think we are? That we as sinners who have been saved by grace could look down on anyone and judge anyone knowing our own condition. We must show mercy. I'm not talking about condoning sin. I'm talking about showing mercy. Who do we think we are by looking down on others? Let me just close with this thought. Who do we think we are by looking down on ourselves? Solomon's story is great. It's a beautiful story, a beautiful picture. We see his wisdom, we see his justice, we see his mercy. But you know, that woman walked away with her son, the other woman walked away, and they were both prostitutes, and that kid was still illegitimate. Can I tell you what happens for us? We come to our king, who is full of wisdom, who is full of justice, who has resolved this problem of sin, and full of mercy, so much so that when we come in contact with him, we are no longer what we used to be. That is not my name anymore. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.18, and we pick it up in the middle of these great promises. This is not a complete thought, but listen to what he says. And will be a father, speaking of God unto you, and you shall, you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. Can I tell you something this morning? The God of heaven saves you, and this morning, I don't care about your past. I don't care about what you've done. I don't care what side of the tracks you were born on. I don't care how much money you have, the color of your skin, or the, the, the things that were done that you are ashamed of today. I'm telling you this. When we come to Christ, we are cleansed forgiven, and our names are changed. We are no longer what we used to be this morning. We are now, listen to this, sons and daughters of the King of glory. That's pretty good. And so, I have no right to look down on anyone else, and I have no right to keep on going back to this nonsense that's not who I am anymore. It's not who you are anymore. And this king is merciful. He changes our name. <laughs> You're not illegitimate. You're not a prostitute. You're not a liar. You're not a whoremonger. You're not covetous. You're not greedy. You're a son or daughter of the king. And my friend, that should change us. It should change this morning everything that we do. And so... We see the wisdom of Solomon. We see the justice of Solomon and the mercy of Solomon. But let's see the bigger picture and see the wisdom and the justice and the mercy of our king. Let's pray. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going through your head right now. But I know this. Sin is a problem. We're both saved and lost. But for the lost this morning, listen to me. Christ has dealt with the problem. 
He has made a way through his flesh to open up heaven for you. It's through faith, repentance, in, repentance from sin, faith in him alone. And so this morning, if you don't know Christ, I beg you, before you leave this place today, stop and catch me. I'll sit down with you in my office. We'll talk about what Christ has done for you. You can know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can know that today. Today. That the sin problem is dealt with. Revelation 21.8 doesn't deal with you anymore. You're a son or a daughter of the king. For the rest of us, Christian, quit toying with your sin. Don't be sitting in church, sinning away, acting like that's okay. It's not okay. Our sin should grieve us. Why? Because it cost the son his life. Quit excusing it. Quit playing games with it. Quit acting like your sin is acceptable. It is not. It's filthy, vile, and wicked. And quit. If it's gossip, if it's slander, if it's lust, if it's greed, if it's unkindness, if it's this haughty spirit, repent of it. And then finally this morning, we as a people must glory in the, in the mercy of our God. Because he's been merciful to us, what choice do we have then to be merciful to others and merciful to ourselves? Some of you folks this morning, you beat yourself up constantly. And you completely ignore what Christ has done. Isaiah 42 talks about the fact that he will not bruise or break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoking flax. And if he will not do that, we have no right to do it ourselves. And so this morning, trust him. Oh, glory in his mercy. Love his mercy. Rejoice in his mercy and share his mercy.